This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. Second Corinthians chapter 7. Sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beg your pardon. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's a good job Hannah hadn't the flu this weekend. Can you imagine me leading the worship? Huh? I sing in the key of Yale. So that wouldn't be much help, would it? All right, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Very familiar. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Today I want to speak to you about simply what it means to be a Christian. When you say, I am a Christian, it's not like saying, I am a plumber, I am a teacher, I am a doctor, I am a girl guide or a boy scout. It's not something you, you join because you like perhaps the values or some of the ideals that are in Christianity. It's not something that you serve an apprenticeship or go to university to study with perhaps a mind to maybe getting a job out of it in the end. Not even because you go to church or perhaps you pray a little or maybe learned a catechism, or joined a choir, or a particular denomination. Becoming a Christian involves a radical, internal, spiritual transformation. It's something that changes us from the inside out. It becomes self-evident, not only to us, but to all around us. You become literally a new creation in Christ. You experience the new birth. You're born again from above. You have been dead in trespasses and sins, alienated from the life of God. You've been blinded by the God of this world, living in spiritual darkness. But God, in his mercy, sent his son, the Lord Jesus, to come to die on the cross to forgive us our sins. And again, he sent his Holy Spirit in order to convince us and convict us of what he'd done at the cross uh, was sufficient and it was enough to save us our eternal souls. And so only then, when you believed that and received that, then and only then did you become a born-again believer in Christ. And that's when all things passed away and all things became new. Now, I, I don't need to labor uh, about the old things that are passed away. I think all of us know the old things that were in our life, and thank God they have passed away. But what are the new things that have become new? All things have become new. What are they? What are the things in our life that has become new? If nothing has changed, then that must mean the old things are still there. But thank God something has changed, and the old things are no longer there. And all things have become new. So what is it that has become new in our lives as evidence that we truly are Christians? First of all, you begin to 
live for Christ and for others rather than yourself. And that's a radical change that immediately comes into our lives. Suddenly, we're no longer living for ourselves, but we're living for Christ and we're living for others. And we begin to make sacrifices for the kingdom of God and sacrifices for others, and we become much more selfless and less selfish. Selfishness makes us sacrifice others, but not sacrifice for others. And there's a difference. Selfish people will sacrifice their families, their husbands, their wives, their children for the dream or the goal or the ambition they have that they must do. They will sacrifice anything for that. And family and friends just become collateral damage in the drive in order to attain this particular dream or goal. Driven people often have tunnel vision. They don't see much beyond what they're aiming at. And unfortunately, that selfishness causes heartache and trouble to everybody around them. Now, self-preservation is something that is firmly rooted in the human psyche. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. All of us from time to time may have occasion when we have to protect ourselves or defend ourselves or fight for something that is right. And that's a far cry from trampling over everybody to climb the greasy pole of this world's success. The most popular song they say in the Western world that's played at funerals is no longer the 23rd Psalm. It's Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. That's the most popular song played at funerals in Britain and America today. And that shows where we have gone as society, where number one becomes first and foremost. And so the ad, the ad for the woman's, uh, ad, what do you call that ad where it says, you are worth it? L'Oreal, you are worth it because you are worth it. Now, it's one thing somebody else saying that to you because you are worth it. It's another thing when you begin to say to yourself, I am worth it. Whenever the I and the me and the my begins to rise, then we are surely in trouble. And so a Christian starts to live for Christ and for others. You seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Paul says, for me to live is Christ. At the very center of all that he was is Christ. In 1 John 3, 16 and 17, first epistle, 1 John 3, 16 and 17, by this we know love because he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Now, isn't it interesting that John 3.16, the Gospel of John 3.16, very clearly tells us that Christ laid down and gave his life for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But 1 John 3.16 tells us not only that, but we are to lay down our lives for the brethren if necessary. Now, obviously, very few will be called upon to literally do that, to lay down your life for a brother or a sister in Christ. And John knew that, of course, too. And that's why he goes on to say, well, in practical terms, you may not have to do that literally, 
But in practical terms, then he goes on to say, but whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? So that's the very antithesis of selflessness. That's purely selfish. To shut up our bowels of compassion, as the Bible says, when somebody's got a need, and we can meet that need, but we choose not to because we'd rather hold on to whatever we have instead. And John says that does not show the love of God. How does the love of God abide in us when that happens? And so a true Christian will live a life that is sacrificial. It's going to cost you time. It's going to cost you energy. It's going to cost you resources. There's going to be times when it will be very inconvenient to serve as a Christian. There'll be times it'll be energy sapping, it'll be time consuming, it'll be very demanding and challenging. But that comes with the territory. There'll be times you'll have to turn the other cheek, you'll have to go the extra mile. But all of that helps us and keeps us from being selfish. The Apostle Paul, writing to the Corinthian church, had to deal with some selfishness in the congregation. In fact, some of them were taking each other to court over things. And he says, is there nobody, can I paraphrase, is there nobody with brains in that place can deal with this, that you take this before the unbelievers? In fact, he says, would you not even be better suffering loss than taking it before unbelievers? But you're so selfish, you want your way. And so Paul was concerned about that had crept into the Corinthian church. He also talked about those who, who were arguing who was the best preacher, who was their favorite preacher. He says, you're very selfish. He says, do you not know that whether it's Paul or Apollos, he says, one sows and one race, but it's God that gives the increase. Even when they came to communion, which would be part of a love feast, he says, the rich people, they were bringing much to eat, and the poor people had nothing. He says, what? He says, he not houses to eat in? Why are you waiting here to bring all this food to guard yourself in front of these people is nothing? You're so selfish. But the believer, the first thing that we live for Christ, that we live for others, and we put ourselves last for the most part. And do you know what? If you live for Christ and you live for others, God will make sure you have enough and more for yourself. Second thing, what it means to be a Christian is you become three-dimensional. What do you mean, David, by three-dimensional? Well, before we became <coughs> believers, we were, <coughs> excuse me, we were two-dimensional people. We were two-dimensional. We lived our time. We lived our, in time and space. This was our time, and this is our space. We live on Earth. This is our space. And this is our time. So, in other words, we live for the here and now. But when you became a believer, suddenly you entered into another dimension, a third dimension. The third dimension is an eternal dimension. So you're not just living for here and now, you're living for there and then. And that's a radical change. And so for the first time in your life, you're thinking beyond this life. And you're living your life according to what's going to happen in the next life, the there and the then, not just the here and the now. 
So suddenly you become three-dimensional. There's another dimension to your life that you never considered before, that you never had before. And it becomes very different. And this eternal dimension was a game-changer for us. And so before we just lived in the two dimensions, but now we have the third dimension. Now we have a greater purpose. We have a more noble goal. We have a better ideal. We have something that will outlast time and will go into eternity. Something that will not be ephemeral, but eternal. Something that we can lay up, reserve, restored, restored in heaven for us, the Bible talks about. The longer you live as a believer in this world, the sooner you realize how ephemeral things are, how quickly things change and things pass away, and how much is just a fancy and a trend and a fad, and everything changes. Life is fluid. It shifts. It ebbs and flows. It changes. You know, it becomes something that's very hard to keep up with. Life's moving so fast. You know, our, our, all you young people that's in here, you grew up in the, in the IT world. You grew up with the Internet and all that. But us older ones didn't. And it was a big learning curve for us. And we had to adapt. And we had to make an effort to adapt. Otherwise, we get left behind in this world. You mean, today, they're closing banks all over the place. Unless you go electronic banking, we're going to be in trouble. And so we have to learn all these things. That's just the way that it is. Everything changes. And so, that's why we need an anchor for our souls. That's why we need a solid foundation, a rock to stand on. We need something that's timeless, that's changeless, that's immovable, and eternity offers us that dimension that nothing else does. Now, whenever you're young, perhaps, you think less about this because your life is being shaped. You have to think about relationships that you need to work out, your education, your job prospects, your personal goals, your aims, your ambitions, and you're tempted to think, well, there's too much in time to think about before I think about eternity. I'm young. I've got my whole life ahead of me. That's a big mistake. It's a big mistake. Why? Because the very tiniest, the tiniest part of your existence is here and now. And by far the greatest infinite part of your existence is the there and then. It's that third dimension. And so whatever we do, and we have to get our shape our lives, and we have to find relationships, and we have to get jobs, and we have to fulfill ambitions and dreams, and, and do all of that and more. But whenever you do it, keep your eye on eternity, because that's where everything we do will be judged. That's where everything we have and everything we do and everything we say, we will stand before the Lord and be judged to see whether it's going to receive a reward or not. And so eternity for the believer is not optional. How we live in time is not optional whenever we think about eternity. 
that means much to be a Christian. But seek first, Jesus said in Matthew 6, 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now, Jesus recognized the difference between the natural and the spiritual, between the inner man and the outer man, between things that are eternal and things that are temporal. He agreed that both are necessary because this is the world that we live in. But that's the world we're living for. And so there's a difference. And he knew that. He also recognized not just the difference between the two, but the distance between the two. One is here and now, one is there and then. One is earthly, the other is heavenly. One is limited to this life only, the other is unlimited to the next life, to all of eternity. In Matthew chapter 6, if I may just turn to that quickly. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where there are thieves break through and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Verse 25. Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valued than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that Solomon and all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. All of that is in here and now. All of that is in this time and space. And the Lord was very well aware that that's where we live and those are the things that we all need. But then he goes on to say, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And so there's a difference, isn't there? In Colossians, in chapter 3, verse 1, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. Note that. Set your mind, set it on things above not on things of the earth. We have to deal with things on the earth. We have to work with things on the earth. We have to live on the earth. But he says, don't set your mind on that. Set your mind on things above. Look at the other dimension. You're going to spend all eternity. Think of that. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ who is our life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15,
1 Corinthians chapter 15. I believe it's verse 45. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterwards the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, and as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. And so the Apostle Paul is reminding us, as Christ did in Matthew, that there's another life that we're living for, not just this life. And so thank God that as believers, our life has radically changed and we have a different dimension. Jesus was concerned about the disciples' perspective on life. He knew they had all these needs and he made it clear that your father knows that. And if you put God first, he'll make sure you're taken care of. What dimension were they living for, the here and now or the there and then? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. If your heavenly Father knows that you have need of all these things, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Three times he mentions things. All these things, whatever things are that we need in this life. And there's lots of things that we need, that we have to have to live, to exist. But he says, whatever they are and whatever you need, don't set your heart on that. Don't make that our chief concern. Luke 12, 15, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things which he possesses. Unless our perspective from the world is different, then things possess us rather than us possess things. Things are only meant to be a means, not an end in themselves. So what is your perspective of things? Is your home an extension of God's kingdom? Is your car an extension of God's kingdom? Do you ever invite somebody to come to church in your car? Bring them. Drive them as an extent, as a tool for God's kingdom to use. What about your business? What about your career or your marriage or your children? Are they an extension of God's kingdom because he wants it to be? How do these things affect our zeal for the Lord, our zeal for the kingdom, our zeal for God's house? If they don't affect it in a positive way, then we've got to think, well, what am I living for? Is it just the here and now? Is it just stuff? Or is there a greater goal in life? And for the believer, there ought to be. Practically, all these things are for us to enjoy, but technically, they all belong to him. He's the giver in the first place. And so, the difference between ownership and stewardship is very, very clear. And getting the balance between the here and the now and the there and the then is the best way to enjoy all these things that God so graciously gives us to enjoy. And we're not against things. We need things. We need stuff. 
We need homes, we need cars, we need clothes, we need food, we need all of that, and Jesus knew that. But he says, don't make that your chief aim in life. Go higher than that, because all of that is going to pass, all of it. Nothing we take with us, all of it will be left behind. It's only what is ahead of us that's going to be eternal, isn't it? I like what the Apostle Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4 and 8. Having promise of the life that now is and that which is to come. See, there's the both, isn't it? Having promise of the life that now is. There's so much has been promised for the life that now is if we trust him, if we love him, if we serve him. But then Paul says, and of the life to come. And that's the greater part. So making your life count for time and eternity is a very large part of being a Christian. So what it means to be a Christian. There are multiplied people around the world who call themselves Christian. And the term Christian for the most part in this world is instantly recognized and largely respected, but some places greatly scorned and derided. But where did that term Christian come from? When did it first originate? What exactly does it mean? Turn with me to Acts chapter 11. Verse 25 of Acts 11. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And so it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Now take note of that. The disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Throughout the New Testament, Christians have been called saints about 60 times, disciples about 30 times, believers about 80 times, and brethren over 200 times. But only three times is it recorded in Scripture that believers were called Christians. And yet that's the most normal and natural and popular name for believers today, isn't it? Christians of all elks and of all shades. If you say you believe in Jesus Christ, today you're called a Christian. Whether you're saved or not, you're called a Christian. But in the New Testament, only three times were believers called Christians. Christian means basically one who belongs to Christ. Antioch where they were first called Christians. Antioch in Syria was some 300 miles from Jerusalem. It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire, beside Rome itself and Alexandria. It had a population of some half a million people. It was highly influential, very wealthy, a great city, a city where it was reckoned that its main street was four miles long, built with marble, lined with pillars and colonnades, 
So this was a massive city in its day. It was a terrible, sinful city. Daphne was its chief god. And in its temple to Daphne, they had prostitutes, temple prostitutes. And so it was a perverted, sinful city. But into that city, Christian missionaries from Cyprus and Cyrene took the gospel to the Greek-speaking Jews in Antioch. I haven't time to read it. I've read previously before we just read. You will see this. And God mightily blessed them and blessed their ministry. Large numbers of people came to Christ. And then news got back to headquarters in Jerusalem, and Barnabas, we just read there, was sent to check it out, to see what was happening. And when he got there, it was absolutely thrilled. Wonderful. Hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of people were coming to Christ. It was wonderful. The great revival was happening. And so what does Barnabas do? He goes to Tarsus and he gets Paul to come and to preach and to teach them uh, the, the rudiments of, of the New Testament and the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so it was in this city that for a full year that they stayed and they preached and they taught. And it was in this city where the name Christian came into being. It was first coined. Now this was some 13 to 15 years after Christ was born. And so, and after Christ had died actually, I should say. The Latin suffix I-A-N, Christian, it means belonging to the party of belonging to the party of. And perhaps it was used to distinguish the, the difference between the natives of Antioch for them to distinguish between the Jews who were living there and then the Greek-speaking Jews who were now getting saved through these evangelists. And so the word Christian became known as Christ man. And it was probably used as a nickname or a derogatory term. Oh, he's Christ man. Because they had all their old gods but these ones, these were Christ man, Christ woman. Notice they weren't called churchians or biblians or doctrians. Christians. Evidently Christ was at the heart of everything they said and everything they did. They were Christian in word, they were Christian in walk, they were Christian in worship. Somebody says, if you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? There was enough evidence to convict them because Christ became the whole center of their lives. And so Christians were first called Christians at Antioch. And they became witnesses for Christ. Witnesses. In Acts 26, 28, you don't need to turn to this. It says, then Agrippa, this was King Agrippa, then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. This is the second time it's used. You almost persuade me to become a Christian. Now the backdrop for Agrippa's statement covers several chapters in Acts, which we don't have time to do. But basically here's the backdrop. Paul was accused by the Jews of blasphemy, of desecrating the temple, and for that it was death. But they had not got the, the legal right to 
to execute somebody. Only the Romans could do that. And so they tried to get the Romans authorities to try Paul and to execute him, to put him to death. And so the Roman governor, Felix, whose wife was Jewish, she, he heard Paul's case. And whenever Paul reasoned with him of temperance and righteousness and judgment to come, it says Felix trembled, scared the living daylights out of him. Literally, his knees were knocking. And he says, go away for now. And when I have a more convenient season, I will call for you. Festus, who succeeded Felix, he also heard Paul's testimony to the court. And he too didn't know what to do with him. Why? Because Paul had Roman citizenship. And that put him in a different league just to an ordinary Jew. He had Roman citizenship. Because he had Roman citizenship, he had Roman rights. He could appeal at the last to Caesar if he wanted to, and he actually did appeal to Caesar because that was his inalienable right as a Roman citizen to do that. And so neither Phoenix nor Festus knew what to do with this man. They knew, of course, that the Jews was wanting them dead, but that was a political hot potato, what to do with him. Pilate, you remember, was in the same dilemma with Jesus. So then King Agrippa and Bernice, his wife, they pay, or Bernice, his sister, I should say, they pay a visit to Festus, and he tells Agrippa about his problem prisoner. And he saw this as a way out. Well, he's the king. We'll let him deal with it. And of course, Agrippa was very desirous to meet and to hear the Apostle Paul because his fame had spread abroad. And so Paul's defense before Felix and Festus and King Agrippa, it wasn't really so much a defense of Paul, but a defense of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he was very able to do that. He was a brilliant speaker. And he was anointed of God. And he was able to share the gospel in a plain way. He presented the gospel fluidly and plainly. So there could be no mistake. It was a simple, but he feared nobody, even King Agrippa. He was being a witness unto Christ. And by the way, the word witness, we get that. Uh, whenever we see that Stephen in Acts chapter 8, he became the first martyr. And the word witness is martus, M-A-R-T-U-S, or M-A-R-T-U-R. And that's where we get martyr from. And so to be a witness could have literally cost you your very life. But Paul was fearless. Even before Agrippa, he did not care. He preached the gospel. And Agrippa said to him, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. The commentators are divided on what he actually meant by saying that. Was he being sincere or was he just being sarcastic? One or the other. If he was being sincere, he would probably say something like, let me paraphrase, do you know what? You almost persuade me to be a Christian. I'm, I'm nearly convinced. Or if he is being sarcastic, he might have said, you almost persuade me to be a Christian? 
And we're not sure exactly what way he meant it. But whatever way he meant it, whether sincere, whether it being sarcastic, whatever way he meant it, he didn't become a Christian. There's a lot of almost Christians. You know, they live a good life and they're decent, they're honorable, maybe even go to church, maybe even sing in the choir, maybe even on the road in some church to do some business, maybe a deacon even, but they're not born again. They're not a true believer. Well, they're almost, well, almost is not enough. That's like a woman saying, I'm almost pregnant. Yeah, there are, you aren't. Can't be. Has to be one or the other, doesn't it? Ivor Powell, great old Welsh preacher, he said four things about Agrippa's encounter with Paul. He says, his faith, he believed the prophets, because he said, I believe the prophets, Paul said. But it was head faith, not heart faith. His fear to become a Christian would invite ridicule. And you know, that stops a lot of people from becoming believers in Christ. What will my folks think? What will my mates say? What will those in my office say? What will those in my factory floor say? Because it might invite ridicule. His folly, he listened and apparently, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> he listened and apparently did nothing about it. His fate, he never heard Paul again. So perhaps that was literally his last chance. And so a Christian is one who belongs to Christ, is one who witnesses or speaks of Christ, and finally one who suffers for Christ. Philippians 1.29, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. John 15.18.20, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of this world, the world would love its own. Yet because you're not of this world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. You know, sometimes if you, I don't know whether you watch maybe current affairs programs. I, I do till I get angry and switch over and suddenly goes out of the room because I begin to heat up. But if you're watching that one with Dimbledy, you know, it's on a Thursday night late, and there's a panel and there's questions about today, and if one of the panelists just happens to be a Christian, you know he is going to get slaughtered. He's going to get thrown to the lions, and he gets baited. And there's people in the audience who bait him. In fact, Dimbledy will go out of his way to bait a Christian. And you see, no matter what that man or woman says, there's just against them. And Jesus says, don't be surprised at that. They did that with me. I'm the master. You're a servant. What do you think they're going to do to you? Hebrews 13, 13. Therefore, let us go forth outside the camp bearing his reproach. Once you step out of this world into Christ's world, once you leave that camp and into his camp, there's a reproach. Somebody's not going to like it. 
some of your old friends won't like it and they won't want to be your friend anymore, so be it. That's the way it is. There's a reproach when you're in the camp of Christ. Philippians 3.10, Paul says, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of the sufferings being conformed to his death. None of us is going to have to go to a cross. But all of us, if we're true believers, at some point somewhere, whether a family member, whether a neighbor, whether somebody in your class or your work, but somebody somewhere is not going to like it. And they might even know why they don't like it, but they're going to say something or do something. And that's the way that it is. It's part and parcel of being a Christian. And it will become increasingly so, and is becoming increasingly so. And so if you think becoming a Christian is for a soft life, <laughs> it ain't. And it's not going to become softer because we're going to end up having to take stands. Let me close with this. Alexander the Great, that mighty warrior who conquered the then known world. A soldier was brought before him to be court-martialed. And Alexander says to him, what is your name? And he says, Alexander, sir. And Alexander looked at him and says a little bit louder, what is your name? Alexander, sir. The third time he shouted, what is your name? Alexander, sir. And Alexander says, soldier, either change your behavior or change your name because no one bearing my name can conduct themselves the way you have. If we call ourselves a Christian, then our behavior, our lifestyle ought to reflect him, the master, in every area. And it's a high standard, isn't it? And it's only by the grace of God and the help of his Holy Spirit that we can honor his name and live to his name and be seen as a Christian, one who belongs to Christ. The world hates hypocrites, don't they? They absolutely hate hypocrites. They would rather you not be a professing Christian at all. But if you say I'm a Christian, then they watch us, don't they? And they want to see Christ in us. And if they see Christ in us, then very often that's the thing that is our testimony that will impress them, that will attract them to us, that gives us an opportunity to share our faith. Why? Because we have lived it out before them. How often have you heard, oh, that person was a real Christian? Why? Because they exemplified Christ. So Alexander says, if you want to live and conduct yourself, if you're going to use my name, then you've got to live in a way that honors me. And Christ says that to us. Live in a way that honors him. Amen? So that's what it means. And much more, of course, to be a Christian. Lord Jesus, we thank you 
that we have the privilege and the honor of taking up your name, of being a Christian, a follower, one who belongs to Christ. So give us the grace and the strength to live up to that, that we may become good adverts for the Lord Jesus, that our lives may reflect his life, and help us, Lord, not to be continually living for the things of this world that will all pass away soon enough, but that our home <coughs> is in heaven, that the greatest part of our life will be in heaven. And so we give you thanks for your grace and mercy. Bless you for your goodness towards us. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.